Hi everyone, it's Ed Clancy here. Welcome to the Pursuit Line podcast. We're going to be talking about everything high performance. We've got some really interesting guests. We're going to be speaking to them about what's drove them to success, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Hope you enjoy. Ed, I'm super excited about this one because there's a lot of history and context behind it. So we've got Pete Kenya coming on, who was obviously part of your 2012 Olympic winning four-man team yeah. at the London Olympics. There's so much stories behind that anyway. But also you fast forward then eight or nine years, the fact that at a very early age, he decides to retire and he cites mental health challenges around it, which is quite a brave step to take. Absolutely. And there's this idea that you know, when you're in, in Scythe and it's, everyone's telling you you've got this gift, this special, magical, wonderful gift, you know, and he was certainly a talented fellow, but it's only a gift if you enjoy it, you know what I mean? For Pete, I got the impression it was a bit like a gift at Christmas that he didn't really want, you know, <laughs> but everyone was watching, so he had to kind of smile and pretend he was enjoying it. I've got to say, you know, in my time of knowing Pete and being sat there in the pits in the heat of competition, and I mean like the heat, you know, pre-2012, the World Championships and the big day itself, he was a remarkably positive person. He'd sit there and he'd sort of buzz with energy. And I'd go out my way to sit next to him in the pits just because he used to bring me up and he used to make me think everything's okay. And, I mean, I literally remember him sort of reciting stories about what's worst-case scenario. You know, if you lose his job tomorrow and we don't make it and all that, he would be happy and he'd go back to the Island Man and be a postman and everything was going to be okay. But it'll be interesting to see him today and see if that's what he was really thinking. Yeah, I think so. There was always something there and he was just masking it. Or was it something that dealing with success post-2012, yeah. then being at the success machine of British Cycling, and then into Team Sky, and into yeah. that cauldron of pressure, high performance. And that would be really fascinating, and that's why I'm super excited about this one. I can't wait to get started, so shall we? Let's do it. Pete Kenyuk, welcome to the Pursuit Line podcast. Thanks for sparing a bit of time for us, mate. I know you're out there in Calpe, and you're busy with your Trinity team. How are you finding things out there? Thanks for having me. It's been great, really good. Really enjoying my job role within the team, working with the younger guys again. The guys that I'm working with, for me, that was probably my favourite part of my whole career, you know. As far as cycling goes, that's the university. It's where you're doing your studies, you're learning your craft, you're with your mates. Obviously, racing and training is serious. Yeah, yeah, But yeah, yeah. at that age, it's still fun. And because you've got so much to learn and there's so many new experiences that you're going through day in, day out, when I look back, they're my fondest memories. So to be able to like work with people now at that age and give back from my experiences, it's really given me a lot back and really enjoying my role, yeah. And how many cyclists would you say are in the AR Diamante in Calpe right now, Pete? I was out there myself with British Cycling at the start of January and it's an absolute perfect place to set up for cycling, isn't it? And it's no wonder you're there. It's perfect. And I think the hotel have like an offer for cyclists. I don't know if the owners are cyclists or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But they have a good discount for cycling I, groups. I feel sorry for people who go on booking.com and think, should we go on holiday in February? And, oh, Calpe looks nice. Well, you know, search hotels on booking.com. <laughs> oh, damn, Montmartre looks good. It's got a spa, nice pool outside. Yeah. And then you turn up and we couldn't even get in the restaurant last night. We had to wait because it was so full, but it's just absolutely rammed. Full yeah. of cyclists and across the whole spectrum, you know, it's like there's a lot of under 23 teams here. Then you have like your club groups. There's a French group of probably 40 to 50 year old club cyclists. Yeah. It's like 20 of them. Feels like you're at a race almost. Yeah, understood. 
I know you're a bit younger than I was, Pete, but I spent my life on the academy growing up in Manchester and Rod Ellenworth, our old coach, I don't think he'd have took us anywhere to like Calpe or Mallorca to get a bit of sunshine, even if we could and even if we did have the budget. So I'm sure the lads out there would be loving it. I guess it'd bring back a few memories of yourself then. Yeah, it's really interesting actually because Ian Stanard runs the Trinity team. You're on the academy with him. I was even older than him, mate. It's hard to believe. Yeah. yeah. Here you go. Obviously, we went through our careers together and now we've ended up in this position together. Yeah. And subconsciously, maybe because we're working with that age group, we find ourselves talking about the academy a lot now. Yeah. And when we were on in Manchester, like you say, you were out in this hotel with the under-23 academy team and they're here now. So when we were cyclists, Rod Ellenworth was our coach. So effectively, where the Rod Ellenworths, which is crazy because time's just like flown by. But you find yourself like judging them because when you're on the academy, Rod had his standard, didn't he? Which was like up here, you know? Absolutely, yeah. So you always find yourself checking in against that standard, even though we're in charge now. But obviously, it stayed with you, everything that you went through. So maybe even what Rod was doing, you know, I'm not going to say it's the right or wrong way. It's so embedded in you you find it hard not to say it, do you know what I mean? So like, for instance, I mean, these guys are 18, 19, and I was at the bar last night around nine o'clock and a couple of the British guys were ordering Coronas on a training camp. And I was like, Jesus, if Rod seen us at the bar Mm. ordering a bottle of Corona on a training camp, we would have either been washing all the vehicles or doing, I don't know, like three hours around the top of the velodrome, wasn't it? Yeah, that was right. There was some horrible time trial circuit in Congleton as well. And I'm sure I did about seven hours around that one day. Some of the stuff that Rod used to do, I don't think he'd get away with now. <laughs> Quite possibly not. Yeah. yeah. I've been hanging out with Matt Bramier, the under-23 coach for British Cycling, in the last month or two. And it's amazing how much of Rod I see in Matt. But I think that's a thing, isn't it, Phil? Is this something to do with like your first managers, like a massive influence on well, it? Well, it's a learned behaviour, isn't it? If you look at anybody... You know, if you've got a stereotypical family, you've got to believe your dad's straight and your mum's straight. Yeah. And maybe you normally get a bit of a dominant one towards the other. There's a second evolution of that. And it's when you have somebody in a position of influence. So it could have been a school teacher, a sports coach. It could have been a manager in a job, you know, your first leader. They're showing you the way of how they do it. Mm. So you're naturally going to absorb that as a sponge, aren't you? You're going to take it in. So exactly what you said there, Pete. Yeah. It goes into your subconscious. Yeah. And then when you're put in that position for the first time, it automatically comes out because yeah. it's playing that memory from a subconscious of, oh, this is what we do in this situation. I've seen this picture before when I was in that situation. Yeah. It's yeah. then understanding that when you mature into a coach, leader, manager, is actually just forming your own sort of methodology exactly. and taking the good and the bad and dissecting yeah. them. And I've thought about this quite a lot, especially being here the last couple of weeks because everyone always goes on about hindsight's a wonderful thing. And obviously, you can't use hindsight for yourself because it's been and gone. But you can use it for them when you're coaching other people. Yeah. If that makes sense, you know what I mean? Even with these guys, like I know nutrition, diet's a massive thing. But for me, it's like the 18, you know, and they have their whole careers and their whole lives ahead of them. And it's about implementing stuff at the right time. Do you know what I mean? And you're only young once. They're in a high pressure and a high stressful environment as it is. For me, it's like implementing training, lifestyle, structure at the right time and when they're ready for it. Because the last thing you want to do is, like you say, subconsciously, this is going to embed in them for the rest of their lives. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you say, it's about using your own experiences, isn't it? I think so. And in the coaching world, it's about foresight, not hindsight. So you do want people to do the same mistakes you made. 
Yeah. So you're then using foresight of being open and honest and transparent as a coach of just be awesome. mindful if you do this, this is the road it could open. We open these neural pathways of good habits or we go down this path and where you're at right now is a crossroads and empowering them to make decisions that they've got ownership over all of that. And you talk about it being embedded in you at that age. And I think what's different about maybe coaching and working with world tour athletes who are already adults, they have their own families, they've had their own experiences and 18 year olds, they're so young and it's almost like you try and direct them in the right way. But ultimately you don't want to be responsible for maybe pushing them too much, you know, yeah. and cycling, especially is such an obsessive sport as it is. I think yeah. you've got to be really careful of how much information you give them. Yeah. And I think at this age, at 18, in terms of like on the road, let's just say, for instance, you have three years as an under 23 after junior where you are trying to turn professional. And I think if you get to so 18, 19, 20, at 21, 22, if you're still not professional, it's your fourth year under 23, then maybe you sit down and say, right, this is crunchier. What can we do? This is make or break. And then that might be the right time to more information, more pressure. They're probably ready for more information that they can absorb and take on board. But I think at 18, you have to be so careful. And I think the training and racing, they still need to enjoy it and they still need to have fun. You know, with that in mind, Pete, it's nine and a half years ago, mate, that we were sort of sat on the start line in our home Olympic Games in London, mate. Honestly, I'm so interested in everything that's happened to you between now and then cracking on a bit and then retiring and sort of like finding your way into the afterlife. But I reckon we should sort of start here by going back before then, you know, because as you probably know, I'm just a product of British cycling. You know, I wasn't from a cycling family. I was never really pushed into it. I never really had aspirations to be anyone or anything in cycling. But having watched that little Wahoo documentary on YouTube, which was so interesting to me, you know, you were different and you were speaking about the juniors there. And like, how do you reflect on your own time in terms of when it started, how it started and getting to that junior age? Do you think you'd committed too much, Pete? Do you think there was too much pressure on you? Um, it kind of affected the way you thought? No, because I think that's just who I was as a person and who I am as a person. And I think at the time, it wasn't detrimental because I was so passionate and I love cycling so much that that's what I enjoyed doing. Yeah. And that's the difference. Yeah, as a coach, mm. for example, you say to this 16, 17-year-old guy, you need to do what I was doing, writing everything down, doing this, doing that and they're not enjoying doing it, that's detrimental. But for me, I loved it. I was so engrossed, and it wasn't a chore, you know? I was so passionate about the sport. It was my whole life, and that was fine, because I loved every minute of it. Yeah, like, when I look back now, yeah, it seemed obsessive, but at the time, it felt quite natural, to be honest. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you obviously enjoyed your time as an under-23, and, you know, even when I was riding with you, Pete, this is something I was saying to Phil earlier, I'd make a point of sitting next to you in the pits or in the training sessions in Manchester because even in the heavy heat of competition, man, I remember being sat there in Melbourne 2012, which in my head was really the point where we won our own Olympics six yeah. months earlier on the opposite side of the world. And at that point in time, I felt like I had the weight of the world on my shoulders, man. I was there with three of my best mates. We had a right little pack together, and you know it as yeah. well. And we so desperately all wanted to win that race. But there was a lot of pressure too, you know. We were reigning Olympic champions at that point in time. And I'd sit next to you, mate, because you used to sit there with your earphones on, just vibing away in the pit. You know, I didn't have a care in the world. And I remember no. like it was yesterday. I was like, you're not nervous, Pete. And you said to me, worst case scenario, Ed, is that I'll lose my job tomorrow. I'll go back to the Isle of Man. 
I become a postman like your dad is or was at the time. And you said you'd just be happy. You'd see your friends. You'd do your thing. You know, at that point in time, approaching 2012 and the home Olympics, you were still enjoying it, right? Yeah, that's such a good point. And obviously, I've had like over three years to reflect on, not just like my retirement, but my whole career. And I got so absorbed in, sorry to jump to the last part of my career, but I couldn't get out of this rut. And I was so absorbed in like negative thoughts. At that part of my career, I was on the start line. I was excited. I couldn't wait to get on the start line. And now as a 32-year-old dad with four kids, it would petrify me the thought of doing a team pursuit and that (laughs) countdown. And you've got the crowds and you've got the pressure. And like in the team suit, it's vital, especially for me, because I didn't put out much power off the start, did I? No. So it's vital that I get on that wheel. Yeah. At the time, the only thing that was going through my head in the team pursuit was, I was like, right, in my head, on the start line. I used to, yeah, like you say, listen to the music. I was like buzzing, like absolutely buzzing. Couldn't wait to get on the start line. And I'd be like, right, Pete, all you've got to do is get on the wheel. And then (laughs) after that, my thought was, I cannot wait to do my first turn. I couldn't wait because once I got on the wheel, that was my job done as far as I was concerned. As soon as I get the chance to hit the front and do my first turn, it's going to be amazing. And I'm going to like, if we're down, I'm going to take us up, but I'm going to literally show myself. Do you know what I mean? And that was my whole thought process. Yeah. That was without training. That was just like really natural thought process. That was just how I operated in my head. Looking back now, I was doing stuff subconsciously without realizing. So on the rollers, on the turbo, when you warm up before the team suit, I was visualizing the race, yeah. but without any training, you know? So now people get trained to do that, but I was already doing it without even knowing. I was visualizing people who had not believed in me or confrontations that I had when I was younger that had wound me up. And I was using all this to fuel my performance, basically, and to fuel my like will to just absolutely nail the job. It was really natural. I didn't even know I was doing it. I've wrote Phil in here like to confirm, mate. But, you know, in terms of thinking process, process, process and visualisation, it's textbook. I'm not sure about visualising sort of like negative energy to fuel yourself, but hey, if it works, mate. I don't know if this resonates with you, Pete. So what I'm hearing is that's you almost at peak performance, isn't it? You know, you're there, you're happy, you're engaged, you're present. You just got your own process, your own programme that you do that works for you and it clearly Mm -hmm. did. There's a little bit you were saying there about visualizing the race. So I'm planning that out. So what I'm thinking there is performance coaches, it's motivation towards something. I can't wait to get my turn on the front. But also a lot of people are motivated away from something. And you're away from was the naysayers, the doubters. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. there's an element of both there of going, I'm going to go and do that. And I'm going to do that because of them behind me. Also, like what was interesting for me is obviously with Steve Peters a lot, a British cyclist and a psychologist. And I just did the opposite of what he said to do. Because <laughs> he was like all about logic and going into computer mode. Mm. And I would get into like a form of trance on the rollers or turbo where my whole process was built on emotions. So whether it was negative emotions from the past that would then become positive, I wouldn't say I would get to the point where I was crying. And I think the problem with emotions is they're uncontrollable, you know? Yeah. But I would really use them to really reach a different level, I guess. Those heightened emotions, I believe they helped me perform above what I was capable of, basically. If I was in computer mode and being logical, I'd have never been able to reach that. You're not the first person I've heard say that. And I think it's all well and good breaking things down to a process and trying to be emotionless. But if you're Mm. an emotionally fueled person, you know, you run off adrenaline, you run off Mm. excitement. 
mm. you've got to find a way of lighting that fire. Mm. And if it's a case of, well, we're just going to do X, Y, Z, that's not very exciting no. to people like you, I don't think. And it's about understanding what lights that fire in each individual. And it definitely works for you. Yeah, yeah. You're a logical person. Yeah. I've just got to hit yeah. my numbers, hit my time, hit the pursuit line there. Yeah, yeah. Cav. He yeah. just runs yeah. on pure emotion, doesn't he? And he can mm -hmm. be having a conversation about anything, like off the bike stuff as well. And he just yeah. fueled off pure emotion. And yeah. The first time I did this was the Junior World Champs that I won in Ghent. And the only way I can explain it is in the warm-up, I got to the point where I was that emotional, where I had like a tingling, buzzing sensation throughout my body. So then every warm-up for a big race, once that happened, I knew I was ready. Yeah. It was mad because I don't know how I got there every time, but it was through emotion. Like it wasn't through the warm-up itself and what you were doing in a physical way, you know? It was all in the brain. And I get this like a rush where you feel really light, you know, and like tingly. And I'll get that in every warm-up for every big event, but only for the track. It's different to the road because the road's over a long period yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you do the ramp on your eight-minute ramp, three minutes, three sprints, but it'd be like the last couple of minutes of the ramp, tingles, lightness. It's almost like a loss of breath. And I'd settle down, I'd be like, I'm ready, let's go. Yeah, yeah, understood. Pete, did you ever have a bit of an Olympic come down after 2012? I mean, I know I did, but from the outside looking in at least, it looked like you were having such a cracking time on the road at that point. Fully ticked the track box. Home Olympic gold medal, world record, see you later track. And off you went to the road. And I was just like, fair play to him. So obviously Garrett Thomas is the same with what he was doing on the road, but we were so different. I mean, I think I raced 19 days on the road in 2012. Yeah. Which Bernie Eisel was fuming about because at that point, Team Sky prize money was split evenly between everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Winner. And the funny thing is, he tried to rectify it at the October camp at the end of the season. <laughs> and I was like, oh, so quiet, like 21 year old. I was like, mm, yeah, I'm happy with that. You know, like Froome, Brad Warren, Froome was second. I think they took like 800 grand back or something from the tour just in itself, you know? Yeah. And I like 19 days. So yeah, like after the Olympics, I didn't even stay for the closing ceremony. I went to Ibiza for, for a That's couple right, of weeks. Yeah, yeah. And then on holiday, like injured my foot. Throughout my career, I had this like inflammatory in my blood. So like I had like a lot of hip SI joint problems, which is like between your so your lower back between your hips, basically. Yeah. And it happened on the holiday. I came back from the holiday and it happened on my heel as well. So it was almost like a heel spur, basically heel had just inflamed. So it was almost like I had a golf ball on the back of my heel. So yeah. I obviously did the Olympics, went on holiday, this happened. I turned up at the Tour of Denmark, early war. But luckily for on a bike, you know, you put your shoe on and it doesn't affect you too much. I think G was like second in the time trial. And I was like, how the heck did you do that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Just won the Olympics, how have you done that? And then I had to have this like cast or whatever. It's like, um, I don't know how to explain it. Like, do you know what Stone Cold Steve Austin used to have around his knee in wrestling? I don't know. Do you know, Phil? <laughs> I do. <Yeah. laughs> I must have missed this. But it was like something like that, but around like my whole foot and it went up to like my knee, basically. And I had to have that on for like six weeks after the Tour of Denmark. Yeah, yeah. Take all the pressure off my heel. Wow. And that was pretty much my last race. But come down, no, I didn't really experience it. And also coming from the Isle of Man and small community, everyone knows who you are. It was such a big deal for everyone over there that when I went home, it was like, it was amazing. The whole experience was amazing. And I took the time to just enjoy it, really, which I'm glad about now. Yeah. And then didn't really do much for the rest of the year, to be honest. Did a couple of races and then, yeah, roll on 2013. And then it was just road. So in terms of come down, 
I just enjoyed life for a bit, really. That's good, yeah. And Pete, between 2012 and 2015, you know, you went off and did the road thing, and I saw less and less of you. But somewhere between those two events, do you feel like you lost the love for things? We know now that you took relatively early retirement. Mm. Any reflections on that period of time? Because like I said, you know, you were so positive when we were sat in the pits around 2012. And I just remember me, you and G and Berkey having such a great time around that period of time. I know, yeah, mate. Looking back, the track was really good for me. It suits my personality. And also what suited me was the change in training and group and environment. So yeah. I get bored quite easily, I'd probably say. <laughs> and at that point the fun element was still there compared to what we were doing on the track the road it's so business mm. once you're no use to them they just drop it you know after 2012 13 was different because it was still new and because obviously with the injury and stuff I had a terrible start to 2013 I barely finished a race I went Trainer Adriatico didn't finish Trentino didn't finish Romandy didn't finish I was supposed to do the Giro but because I didn't finish any of these races they said you're not going to do the Giro but still go to the Giro training camp in Tenerife so I was like fair enough yeah. went to the training camp in Tenerife and I was on a ride just a general five-hour ride and Froome was on it talking about my races and stuff and I was like yeah how funny would it be if I ended up like doing the tour and I think it laughed as in like, yeah, good one. I think that camp, it was the first time I trained consistently without injury since the Olympics, to be honest. And although I didn't finish all these races that I just talked about, I still did like five or six days of it, you know what I mean? So everything that I did up to this camp was still there, even though there wasn't much consistency with it. And I had a really good camp, went home, and then I turned up to the dope and I absolutely flying, and then got picked for the tour. <laughs> Up to that point, it was still going really well. My first Tour de France, which was epic, unbelievable. I'll never forget it. I was still living the dream at this point, you know, like yeah. the track was very different for me because the tour was what I grew up watching. And to be there leading the yellow jersey into Paris was the most surreal moment of my life because when I came home and watched the tour on Channel 4 after school, I never, ever thought that would happen to me. When I started road racing, my dream was to turn pro. And I even thought that wouldn't happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. So then to be at the tour was like, Jesus. But then after the tour, got a good two-year contract, had more heel problems, only did one race after the tour. Yeah. What's interesting is like 2013 probably seemed quite successful. But if you looked at it the whole of the year, it really wasn't. I was really inconsistent and it probably wasn't a successful year, to be honest. I just happened to peak at the right time and the stars aligned for a couple of months in the year. Do you know what I mean? I do. Uh, and then I think with that ride that I did at the tour came the big contract, then came the pressure. Then 2014, it was like April. You go from being a neo-pro who's riding a track and you're just given a job to maybe get someone into the bottom of a climb in a good position to turn up to pay Vasco in April. And you're expected to do a top 10 or maybe be the leader because yeah. out of the 30 riders on Team Sky, you're one of the top 10 paid riders, you know what I mean? Yeah. And with that came the pressure and maybe that's when it started to feel more business-like for me. And that's when I started to essentially probably lose the love for the sport because what you can't forget is you didn't start cycling for money. You started it because it was what you loved to do. It was your passion. Yeah. It's never about money. And all of a sudden it was, this is what we expect of you. And if you're not performing, why aren't you performing? So all of a sudden it changed, I guess. I wouldn't say downward spiral, but I'd say that's probably when it started in terms of questioning, is this for me or am I happy? Yeah. 
And the actual decision to stop Pete is something that I'm pretty fascinated with at this point in time because for me, the decision to stop as a 36-year-old cyclist, you know, I've done my four Olympics in the end and I clearly kind of reached the end of my sell-by date in terms of both my age and the history of injuries and so on and where we're at in terms of the Olympic cycles, despite all the overwhelming logic and reason and evidence to suggest that, yes, indeed, it is the time to retire, it was still an unbelievably hard decision to make. I guess my question is, like, was the decision to stop clear-cut? Did you know you wanted to stop at that point? I guess it goes back to what I was saying before. I mean, the only way I can describe it is, like, breaking up with someone that you love. <laughs> yeah. You know? Good, yeah. Um, but oh, I did touch on it a bit in the Wahoo video. It was a build-up of events and also my mental health and putting myself through it time and time again. I think it was after Torino 2014, I remember being in Nice and messaging my wife Lauren and saying, I actually don't know if I want to do this anymore. Like, I really don't know if I want to do it. This was 2014. But she was like, well, that's fine. She was always supportive with everything. She was like, I just want you to be happy. And she was like, well, you know, give it time. If you still feel like this in eight months, and we'll go over that conversation again. But it was so predictable. It was always between March and the end of May when I had these real negative thoughts in my head that were like so overwhelming that I couldn't see past them. Literally in my head, I couldn't be told any different. And then it got worse and worse. So these negative thoughts in 2014 were there, but I'd still managed to ride my bike a bit. And then 2015, again, same time of year, exact same thing happened. Because as a cyclist, your bike is all you have. Mm. Like your mood for the rest of the day is based on your training or how you felt, you know? Yeah, and it got to the point where I couldn't face going out on my bike because I couldn't face feeling how I did on it and it making me feel that low, you know what I mean? Yeah. Each year became more difficult considering my results that I was still getting in those years. But at this period of time in the year, I'm supposed to do like five hours and I'd get 10 kilometers from a house and just find a bench and just sit on it. Do you know what I mean? For instance, we'd go to Tesco to do a shop with Lauren and I'd be pushing a trolley and I'd just be like, I can barely stand up. And I'd just go to the car, put the seat down and just lie there until Lauren finished shopping and got back. It's just like when I look back at stuff like that now, I'm like, that's not normal. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but even to this day, I don't know why it was always at that period of time in the year. Yeah. And I can't put my finger on it. It's tough because I tried to dissect it all myself so many times. And every time I speak about it, like different stuff comes back. Yeah. Is uh, that a good or a bad thing, Pete, in terms of if things come back? Is it good memories or do you find it um, difficult? Well, when we talk about it like this now, yeah. and I talk about those times, it's quite sad memories, okay. to be honest, because yeah. I'm digging up stuff that I'd prefer to forget about. But then when I think about my career in a whole or generally, then there's loads of good memories. It is quite tough. But I mean, that time of year again, when I'd signed for Bora in 2018, went on a training camp, same time of year, Gran Canaria, got there, I think it was like a couple of weeks before Paris-Nice and felt fine going to the camp. Everyone was good, travelled there, great. Did a ride of Swifty when I first got there because he was there, did like five hours, got back to the hotel, fine. He left that day to go to a race. Next day, went out on a ride and I literally had no power in my legs. And all I wanted to do was not be on my bike. That's how bad it was. But this was 2018 now, bear in mind. Yeah. Yeah. I've been through this already. So in my head, I was like, Pete, this is fine. You know what this is. Just turn around, go home, 
cancel a day it's fine just take the day go with the family play in the pool with your kids because Axel was there and just have the day off and don't worry about it because I've been through it before so I was like surely I can manage this now then the next day I was like right new day it's going to be okay again no power come back to the hotel I was like Lauren I'm retiring like that's it I'm done now when I look back that's so irrational you can't just train your whole life to have this career and be fine for the three months up to this point like that's real irrational behavior yeah but at the time i had no idea that it was and, and i couldn't be told it was and my mum was like because my mum was there as well on this training camp she was like can you not just go to paranese or see the year out and then see how you feel at the end of the year i was like you don't get it yeah i cannot go to paranese like the thought of being in paranese was like the end of the world but that's not normal behavior at all but i couldn't see past it you know it must have been difficult for you, Pete, because I can see what you're saying about it being irrational, etc. You're almost entering this pattern of behaviour, but you can't put your finger on what it is that's causing it. No. And it's a sport that you deeply love from a young age. Mm. And you're at the height of your career, a fantastic team with a great set. You don't even want to sit on the bike. Yeah. No. But you can't make sense of it. That must have been so difficult for you. Also, obviously, it was a mental thing that I was going through, but it affected me physically. I had no power on the bike. I would go out on a club run with guys who have nine to five jobs and it's just a hobby and I'd get dropped like as soon as I press on the pedals it would hurt really really hurt and the first time it happened was when we did the recon in Baston Liège which again was same time of year April I had to get in the car it burned to press on the pedals yeah. and Dave Brailsford was there and we went home we had blood tests thyroid tests everything like completely fine mm. and I was just like I had no answer for it but what was so interesting is I'd have that period and that low period and I wouldn't ride my bike. But then it would pass. For instance, 2014 won the Nationals. Was that Lincoln? No, that was Abergavenny. Oh, right. In Tour of Austria, 2015. Again, same low period in April. Then went on to win a stage of the Dauphiné, wear the yellow jersey, win the Nationals again. Same thing happened in 2016 in April but then went on to wear the red jersey in the Vuelta later on in the year. 2017, same thing happened in April. Went on to win a stage in Alpe d'Huez in the Dauphiné. 2018, Bora, same thing happened. I literally retired in my head. Didn't touch a bike for like over a month. I won a race in Belgium and got third in one of the big Italian one-day races at the end of the year. At the end of every year, I was like, what can I do to make sure April doesn't happen again? It was almost like joked about within the team that it was like April disease. Yeah. Because it's just like, what is going on? Yeah. And to this day, I don't know. Do you put that down to like psychological block for that period or? And why did it happen in the first place? This is what I was looking at. So you've obviously got that first season. Was it 2013 after London? You said where you'd obviously been injured, you heal. And then was it 2013 that happened for the first time? No. No, it was 2015 was just like a really average year up until the tour where I was mentally fine all year, but was just playing catch up for not doing enough work throughout the winter and missing yeah. a lot of racing because of the track. I had that really good tour. And then the first year, I'd say I felt like that was 14. It seemed to get worse and worse every year, but then I don't know if that was like a build up as well. So I was like in my head, 15, 16, get to 17, it happens again. And you're like, Jesus Christ. And then obviously what made it worse was the only way you can deal with it in April when it's happening. Well, for me, I'd drink, you know what I mean? Because yeah. then I would just switch off from it. Everything would be fine. You know, I'd have like a couple of beers and it'd be like, well, I'll be fine, whatever. So then that obviously 
prolongs that period as well. Yeah, self-fulfilling prophecy then, isn't it, around that exactly, period? Exactly, yeah. But did you find that the period was prolonging though? So let's just yeah. say it was just April. So in February, March, we'd start thinking that April's going to be poor. So we'd take our foot off the gas a little bit, expecting it to happen? No. Oh, okay. I got to the point where I was like, I'm going to do everything this winter for April not to happen. I had like the perfect winter trains, like absolutely dialed. One Cadell Evans road race that was in January, which for me was like unknown to be going well in January. And I was like, oh, I've cracked it. But it still happened. <laughs> I don't know. When I look back, I mean, that's what I dealt with. And basically it got to the point where I wasn't willing to go through that again because I was horrible to be around. I didn't like who I was. I was very self-destructive. And after you'd made the call, Pete, I'm guessing to at least some extent you'd probably held cycling and sport responsible for the way you feel at times. Mm. I think this happens a lot with sports people. It happens a lot in military life. You know, people have relationships, for example, and they sort of like come to the end of their military life or, you know, their cycling career, whatever it is, under the assumption that life's hard and times are difficult, relationships are difficult because of what you do. And I know this is big in the sort of cycling aftermath. And often when people get there, they leave cycling, they leave the military, whatever it is. It just so happens that things are still hard and relationships are still hard. And how did you find it? Was it helpful to call it a day from cycling? Yeah, because I never had time to really like reset and reflect on what was going on. Because once I started to feel better in the season, then I'd be chasing form results. The cycle would continue, you know what I mean? So there was no reflection time. But when I stopped, like I still carry a lot of bad traits that I had in my career for a couple of months in terms of like, self-destructive and stuff like that but then as time went on and I settled down and started to understand the world a bit more and life then I really started to feel more comfortable with who I was you just can't be told though when you're in your career you know like someone could come up to you and say oh have you thought about what you're going to do after your career or you thought about a pension or you have absolutely no concept of how brutal the real world is and the lives that people lead just to get by, you know? Yeah. You take it for granted. Well, I did anyway. I think that was my downfall. I think I just became massively complacent. And so looking back, I was so self-absorbed. And I think that's where I went wrong. When you talk about the Wahoo video and how I was as a 16, 17-year-old, I completely forgot all that. And I forgot about everything that I did to get to where I was. And with the money and everything else, it's just like, it ruined me. Do you know what I mean? Like now I feel like myself again, which is great. But for a long time, I wasn't. And I wasn't nice to be around either. So Yeah, understood. I think, you know, Ed said there about, you know, do you blame the sport and that? But I think when you're really talking about the sport, I think you're talking really about the environment you're in. Yeah, It's all about results. It's all about everybody being at the top of the game as long as they possibly can. And if you're able to suffer and struggle, you get a good salary for that. It's really hard to let go of both at the same time. Mm. And that's the, well, I can't because I've got commitments. I've got a life. I've got quality of life. I yeah. need, I've got family. Yeah. And all of this is tearing us apart inside. Mm. It's not like when you've got a normal job, you can go, do you know what? It's not working for me. I'm just going to walk out the door and I'll find another one next week. It's a way of life, isn't it? And it's something that you know, you've loved. Yeah. I mean, like doctors or whoever studied for however many years, eight years, who are doing like life-saving operations, how many years are they really like study for? And it's like cycling or any elite sport. What you don't realise is you've studied from the age of when I was racing BMX at seven until 21. All those years were you're studying and that's your degree when you arrive there, you know. You've got your qualifications. 
that's what you forget. You've put your whole life into this. But for me, when I was in that moment that I just talked about, completely forgot all that. I just was like, yeah. I was just like so flipping with it all, you know. And you talk about, or I think about regret sometimes, but probably my only regret is that I just didn't check in with myself. Do you know what I mean? Or check myself where I was at. And I don't know why I didn't do that. I don't know how I allowed myself to get to the point that I was at when I sit here now and talk about it. But obviously I'm like in a really well-balanced frame of mind now. Yeah, that's the difference, isn't it? Being able to check in with yourself and self-regulate, that's a skill. And Mm -hmm. if you don't do it, then you can't do it. So Also, to do that as well, I feel like you need to be in a low-pressured environment and you need time because, like you say, it's learned. And if you don't have time, how are you going to learn it? Because if you've got a week before Pyrenees, you're not going to be like, all right, this week I'm going to learn this. For me, I sometimes think of it like uh, addiction. So like, say, for example, an alcoholic, they've got to actually be ready and wanting to give it up. Do you know what I mean? For an alcoholic to say, you're going to go to this AA meeting, but until they actually want it and need it for themselves, it'll never happen. In my career, like I was never ready to confront properly what I was going through. Do you know what I mean? It was more brushed aside. And I think with addiction, it's similar. You know, you brush it aside, you think, oh, I'll be okay, or I'll get through this next week. It's a coping strategy, isn't it? Right, it's not necessarily yeah. the right coping strategy, but no. it's the yeah, one that gets you through day to day. Yeah, and you can get away with it for so long. Yeah. But until you're ready to confront every demon and everything that's going on in your life, you're never going to overcome it, basically. Do you look back on the last three years of reflection and finding your true self, I suppose, in terms of who Pete Kenyuk is rather than Pete Kenyuk the cyclist? Do you look back at it in a positive lens now that I'm glad I've gone through that because of where I am today? Have you got that far yet? I'd still say it's like an ongoing process, but like I'm probably 90% there, I would say. I still have like, I wouldn't say demons, but like self-doubts and have days where I don't feel great. It's really happened in the last year, to be honest, because for a large part of the last three years, I still considered myself a cyclist and hadn't really let go, you know? And that's what was really hard with the commentary. Because I was like, yeah, sure. in the commentary, but I was like, still felt like I should be there racing, do you know what I mean? And um, <laughs> in the last like probably six months or so, I've really let it go, yeah. um, which has helped massively. You have to work on it every day, you know? Yeah, I think that's something I was thinking about earlier. It's, you know, when you're in a bad place, you almost feel like paralyzed by stress and worry. Mm-hmm. It's like you can't do that new skill, but also it is work. You just said that word there. It is a skill that you've got to work at. That's part of the reason people don't do it. People don't work on the mental health and, you know, if you're not one of those lucky people, in my opinion, that just has a really high baseline of happiness and confidence and self-worth and all that, you've exactly. got to think about it. You've got to work on it. You know, even mm-hmm. if it's five, 10 minutes every day, you've got to put that time aside. And mm-hmm. it is an effort to be happy yeah. sometimes. How many times have you guys gone out on a six-hour ride and like put yourself through it physically, but the mental strength and resilience is a second product just by mm-hmm. going on the TT course four times or whatever you've done? but you don't spend five or 10 minutes preparing yourself in your mental fitness yeah. to be able to go yeah. and do the physical exercise. Yeah. And you go back to that learned process that you're talking about. And it's like, I know now like a pretty decent formula to get myself in a positive mental attitude to either be with the kids all day or whether it's to do a team talk to the guys. I know what that is, yeah. but that's not necessarily what I want to do. For example, I love going out with my mates for a couple of beers and love having a couple of beers at home. But, I know that the next day it makes me feel really anxious and I don't know why that is. 
So I allow myself to have beers when I don't have any high pressure situations going on. Do you know what I mean? So in the build up to a training camp with the team, I just won't drink for two weeks before it. And this is me personally, though, not for everyone. People would be able to have like four beers and it wouldn't affect them the next day. But I think when I talk to these under 23s, I like to talk to them as a professional. And if I've been like drinking in the bar till 10 o'clock at night in the hotel, having like six beers or whatever, for me personally, when I'm talking to them the next day about their training effort, I feel like a bit of a fake. Do you know what I mean? Like I can't take myself seriously because I haven't been serious. Where I get my self-belief from is if I'm serious and take my job serious, then this morning when I'm delivering the team talk or talking to them, I feel genuine with what I'm saying to them. Do you know what I mean? But I've only just learned that in the last probably couple of months Mm. because I was like living quite a normal life, like average diet, you know, just a couple of drinks here and there. And I was like, why do I feel like this? And then I was like, right, I'm going to make some like small lifestyle changes. And then once I started taking myself seriously, my self-belief became better. And then it just clicked. I was like, all right, that's what I've got to do. Then there's times when I'm not working, the pressure isn't there, that I can just relax and have a few beers in the evening. But I've learned that for me to be at my best and perform my best as a coach or a manager, whatever it is, then I need to leave like the lifestyle that gives me the self-belief to perform. There's nothing worse than self-doubt because it just cripples you. That little gremlin in your brain just keeps firing away. Yeah, and, and, and it, it builds well, doesn't stronger it? Stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger, yeah. yeah. Almost where it can take over. Like, I've had certain situations where it almost has took over, you know, and you feel yourself, like, I wouldn't say panic attack, but, yeah. So now I've figured out what works for me, and it's just lifestyle, basically. Yeah. Simple things, but to figure it out is not always simple, is it, you know? To be honest with you, just a positive feedback. I really like the way you're open-minded to trying to work out what it is that some of the causes are, and... You're not the first person I've spoken to that beer at the wrong time is a massive downer, even if you've only had two. Mm. Some people, it might be a different spirit, you know, like the old gin thing, as mother's ruin, you know, you have one, and people's face start dropping and stuff like that. Gin face, I think it's called. <laughs> <laughs> gin face, yeah. But it has a knock-on effect to the you know, whole physiological and our yeah. psychological connection on mind and body. And I really like the point, I even wrote it down before you said it, is that when you've got the responsibility now for you to go on a camp as you are now, you're there not just as a coach, you're there as a leader and a manager. Hmm. And one of the fundamentals we talk about, and we've talked about this a lot, is when you're a leader and a manager, you're in a position of responsibility. And therefore, when you're in the position of responsibility, you've got to role model the behaviors you want to see in others. So the days of the old rugby coach sitting at the bar having 10 pints and then trying to run the lad's legs off and run the field in the morning doesn't work anymore. I'm also a big believer in like, if the person drinking 10 pints wakes up the next morning and is okay with that, then maybe that's fine. If he still believes in what he's saying to the guys and the fact that he's had 10 points doesn't affect his belief in what he's delivering, then I think that's okay. But for me, it's not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's what I figured out. And that's how different everyone is. I didn't just realize that overnight, you know. I think also I noticed when you stop cycling and you do other jobs and you have a little bit of that imposter syndrome, is it? Yeah. yeah. I felt that a bit when I was here in December. And I think the Wahoo video, like, maybe added to that, like, a lot of people seeing it. It was quite deep and stuff. But I just felt like I was here and I felt like I didn't belong here. And I felt, like, really not at ease, you know, where now I feel like a different person. The missing piece of the minute, Ed, is because I know you and Pete probably haven't spoke for a while. Pete probably doesn't know how you respond when things are not going well down in the man cave. And also the way you responded to go into BC camp in January, you know, that first 24 hours. Yeah, first things first, mate. Funnily enough... As you know, we just had a quick chat with Colin Jackson on the previous pod and he had some mint advice. And 
I think perhaps the most useful thing he said to me was, it's all right to not be great at something. And like, I think what we forget, Pete, is that we had this weird little niche thing that we became so good at, you know, and we honed and like developed that weird little skill for 20 years. And this is something you touched on earlier, you kind of base your self-belief and your self-worth and all that on that weird little niche about sticking your skin suit on and whapping around a big wooden track or riding up an hill or whatever it is. And you know, when you think about it like that, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but it's all right to start again and it's all right to like not be great at something Funny yeah. enough when it's your first week on camp like it was with me and Bramier in Calpe you know sat in that same hotel where you are now and talking about imposter syndrome mate I was sat there Matt Bramier bless him he just chucked me up the driver's street first day he was like here's Velo viewer you pass the bottles out the window you tell him to do that and I'm like wow am I really doing this now and yeah. I just felt so overwhelmed fish out yeah. of water a total imposter and just takes time. Funnily enough, 10 days later, I felt half decent at the job. Yeah. You shout move up, didn't you? Is that what you did? <laughs> I pretty much nailed the basics that's there. A, that's what Ed kept up. saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? But what about your own personal response when you're not in a good place? <sighs> yeah, I'll take myself down to the man cave and that's my way to recover. I just go there and I don't speak to anyone, don't go out the house and close the curtains. I guess it's my freeze mechanism. I just pretend things aren't happening and just hide away from it. And I think that's a bad thing in general because by not speaking to anyone and not talking things over, not seeking any support, I get absolutely nowhere. But also I think having a couple of days to kind of process things is something I probably need at that point in time. So I think it's all right to get head down there. I just, at some point, it's important to reach out to my sort of support network and whoever that may or may not be and uh, this is nothing unique to me and you and anybody else it's something totally universal i think i thought the conversation was a lot about you pete which obviously is your pod you know you're the guest but i didn't know if you knew that about ed you know that it's no i didn't know that i guess it's more common than you realize it's just that people mask it don't they like yeah. probably knowing on the december camp knew that's how i felt you know what i mean yeah yeah and probably no one in the gb camp knew that's how you felt no nah, that's yeah. good there was a bit in your little documentary with wahoo pete where you clipped into the pedal and you went, that's it. That's it. That's that kinesthetic feeling, that sound, that link, that mm. enjoyment, that fun. That's what I was getting from that. Is that what you meant when you went, that's it? Yeah. Well, the last couple of months don't rhyme about it that much, but it's like just a sense of belonging. But again, you go back to the complacency and taking it for granted because when you clip in, because that is where you belong, you don't think about it. You know what I mean? Like when you walk through your front door of your house, you don't think, oh, this is my house. You just walk through your front door. But I think like the Wahoo video, like, so obviously what a lot of people don't see is we were doing between an hour and a half and three hours of interviews for five nights in a row. And they obviously took 17 minutes worth out of all of that, you know, to make the video. So with the film, and there was a lot of in-depth chat. And I think it was just like when I was doing the film and I was like on my bike and stuff, it was provoking my thoughts more than usual. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And yeah, it is a funny feeling how at one you feel with a bike. Even now, I don't ride a bike much, but clip in, fly down the hill, and it's like so natural, like the most natural thing in the world for me. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like sports and cycling in particular it's sort of gone full circle now? It's back to being a kid because this is how I feel, man. It's just, it's not your job anymore. There's no pressure. There's no expectation. There's no heart rate monitors and power cranks. And I just feel like a kid again, Pete. And I just enjoy riding my mountain bike and pulling wheelies. And is that yeah. how it feels for you? I, yeah, I haven't like, enjoyed cycling as much since I was about 12, I think. Yeah, oh, definitely. But when I was 12 to 16 or whatever, I couldn't wait to get on my bike. 
at that point in your life, it's like your form of independence, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah transport. Yeah. It's like related to that feeling, you know, because I was like, get back from school, get on the bike straight away, can't wait. Where now it's like, I'm not bothered because Swifty drags me out on the bike quite a bit when he's back. So he'd be like, oh, I'm back, mate. Do you want to go for an easy ride Wednesday? And I'll go out and I absolutely love it. But yeah. if no one messages me to go out, I won't go out because one, it takes ages to like do a ride and loads of effort. <laughs> yeah. So I just go out for runs now and I just don't have loads of motivation for the whole process of riding a bike, basically. And we're just so full gas with all the kids and stuff. Yeah. But when I do ride it, I love it, yeah, because you have no association of work or effort or how you're feeling or how you're supposed to feel. And you just ride it. And if you want to do a little sprint up a hill, you do. And you know what I mean? Yeah, good on you. It's been a fascinating conversation for me, just as a fan of cycling. Obviously, from a million miles away, you don't understand what's happening in the background. No. And the peak Kenyak I remember from a few years ago was, I think I was telling you earlier, actually, it's like watching you at the Grand Tours, like putting the top end cyclists on the hills in the absolute locker and obliterating the field, you know? And that's the memory I have of you and much kudos for that. I know it's a cliche, but you're on this journey for yourself now, aren't you? You know, in terms of getting yourself into a good possible place. You're obviously with Trinity now. So what's the short-term and medium and long-term future look like for you? Or are you just going day at a time? Yeah, so it's mad actually what you said at the start. I don't know if it's like this for you, Ed, yet, but when I see old footage of myself, like in the Olympics or in the tour, I literally feel like I'm watching another person. <laughs> like it's someone else. That's how different my life is. I'm like, I can't recognise myself, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that's mad. But now it's what we're just over three years, spent the first year not really doing much. Even when I was a cyclist, I knew I wanted to work with young and up-and-coming cyclists because the process I've been through and how I was as a pro, I know it's really hard to give back to adults who are professionals because they already think they know a lot. <laughs> Unless you're a sports scientist and you've got a degree in ketones or something, God knows what these days, they don't want to know or, you know. Yeah. So I put like juniors under 23 to just absorb everything. They're interested, they're passionate, yeah. they're enthusiastic. Yeah. And like we talked about, that was like favorite part of my career. So I think just naturally I get a lot of enjoyment out of that because I associate it with good times. And like I said, I knew I wanted to do that already. Even before I retired, I was like, I think when I stop, I'd quite like to do that. But it took a while to get there. And after about a year and a half of just like chilling out, basically, I, so Andrew McQuaid's been my, he was my agent my whole career. He needs a massive shout out on this podcast because I feel like he's my uncle or something because without him, I wouldn't be where I am now because Agents have a bit of a rep, don't they? That they just like look after you and they take the percentage and that's all they're after. He's literally been there for me thick and thin. Yeah. And he's helped me through the darkest moments. He's been an absolute legend. And then I was like, I'm really interested in coaching. But I mean, the day and age we're at now, I mean, if an ex-pro wanted to coach someone back in the early 2000s, you could like be fine, wouldn't it? But now it's like qualifications for everything and you're on about that imposter syndrome and stuff. And I was like, don't really want to like go in too deep with it because one i've never coached anyone before do you know what i mean i messaged rob holden who is quite involved in the junior team on the arm man i was like oh is there any juniors that would like help with coaching and i'm quite keen to learn and help them if i can and then learn also in a low stress environment again no pressure what it's like to coach someone because i've never done it before yeah. so yeah i started coaching sack walker and ralph holden who are just local juniors on the other man then i messaged mcquade after that and then he hooked me up with coaching Luke Lamperty, who's a USA Crit Champ, won that last year as a 19-year-old, which is pretty epic. 
got some amazing results as an under-23 last year. So I'm still coaching him now. And then it just really progressed from there. Got a lot of enjoyment out of the job. Like we were talking about before, Ed, to start off with, I was quite nervous and I would sit down and be like, oh my God, like, I feel so responsible for what I'm setting these guys for training. But it's like any job, it's like you learn what's involved. And then now I have so much self-belief in what I'm telling the guys to do that mm. I'm just really, really enjoying it, you know? Yeah. Now I'm coaching uh, Thomas Globe, another really promising British rider. And he was fourth in the Baby Giro last year as a first year under 23 and loads of other results. So I think I'm getting so much enjoyment out of it because I just feel like if I can be a part of them achieving their dreams and goals in life, then I think it's fantastic, you know? That's where I'm at now. Trinity, going to do some DS and do some mountain bike races with them, ITV stuff on the Tour de France, and then surpass my own coaching business, which is me, my sister Emma, and my brother Tim, who works for Bahrain, so a good setup. Perfect, Pete. Honestly, you know, I think of all your insights and experiences as a professional rider and everything you've been through, that partnership with Tim in particular is worth giving Tim a shout out. You know, he was yeah. a big help to me through my road days. Oh, no, oh, he's a great guy, was Tim. I know he's got a fascination with how you know the human body works, how the mind works, all of that. He's a great guy. Yeah. So yeah, shout out to your surpass business. Shout Thank out to you. Andy McQuaid for sticking by you, Lauren, as well. Yeah. Go on both of them. Mate, you'll smash it. You'll do a great job. And like you said, you know, it's gonna take a little bit of time, but there's no doubt in your insights and experiences and your knowledge and cycling. Yeah. So good work. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks for your time, Pete. It's been fascinating. And I think, as always, with these conversations, I think they could roll on, especially with the history you two got together, that's for sure. I think there could have been a lot more flushed out there. Thanks for having me on. I mean, it's funny because they have these conversations, don't they? always bring more things up, but then you're like, if you leave them, and you're like, oh, I didn't think of that. I should delve back into the old memory. It's been really interesting and pleasure to chat with you guys. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for being so open and honest about everything. And just to finish it off quick, there's two people that were really fully responsible for me cracking on for that final year with coronavirus to make it to Tokyo. It's Geraint and your good self, Pete. I remember the message. Going on Laxi Beach, and I was, I said to Lauren, I was like, Ed just messaged me. I was like, so random. I haven't heard from him in about like a year and a half. But I was like, mate, just see it through. Yeah, it was right on it. Yeah, mate. They want that random. I knew where I wanted to go when I needed some advice. So cheers, Pete. <laughs> cheers, cheers thank you, mate. Legends. Cheers, All guys. Right. So Ed, we had a fascinating hour conversation there with Pete Kenyuk and there's a lot of things going through my mind during the conversation. What's the first thing that is at the forefront of your mind after that? I think when I sort of gave him a big sort of quiz about when he finished recycling, was that the answer to his problems? And I was expecting him to say no. From what I've seen, as I mentioned on the pod, you know, a lot of people sort of have these problems with relationships and they blame the job for everything. And, yeah. and when they finish, they find out that actually they've still got the same problems. But I think in Pete's case, finishing recycling did him a great deal of good and he used the word space and time and it gave him just space and time to go away and think and sort of collect his thoughts and think about his identity and who he is and who he wanted to be and i think sometimes and this isn't unique to cyclists we're all so busy rushing around just trying to survive you know yeah and i think once you get to that sort of bit of a desperate place you're almost paralyzed by the amount of stuff going on in your life and the thoughts and feelings and yeah i think in his case at least stopping sport and sort of finding himself for a couple of years was the best thing he could have done. There's a load of things going through my mind. I was thinking, imagine a bit of prep work in the earlier days around people to know who they are before they go into the high-pressure environment. Mm. So they've got something to fall back on in that time of need. So a bit of that self-awareness work, you know, and I think not so much in Pete's case, 
have a look through his documentary, which is quite deep in places, isn't it? I'm talking like 19, 20, 21, 22, through the under 23 area where they are maturing. You know, they've got an ability to build that cognitive function of understanding rather than forcing it on a 16-year-old that may or may not make yeah. it. So there's been a bit of preparation, but also I think that time out that he's taken, and effectively he had no inclination that he was going to go back cycling, was he? He's done, he's, he's retired. Yeah. So I thought there was a question in his documentary. I thought he might mm. come back. Yep. But he might be coming back as a coach, I think, is what I took away from it. Yeah, absolutely. I think given his experience and I don't know, almost given his struggles, I think he's perfectly positioned to mm. do the role he's doing now, you know, working with juniors under 23s. And he has a slightly different skill set being a, to translate that and sort of deliver that information and knowledge to the lads. But I think once he's nailed that, he'll be great at his job. Yeah, I'll take him a few years. So again, I think that crossover with the Colin Jackson podcast is that, you know, you're not going to be great at doing that yeah. for a while. You've got to build up a new skill set to be able to do that. But I thought what was really encouraging is ability and his openness to talk about it, you know, and I think maybe that documentary's forced that openness yeah. to go, hey, because he was in the press when he did retire, which comes as a bit of a shock. And for those that maybe are listening and are not cycling fans, Pete was like a top, top cyclist. You know, he was one of the biggest teams in the world, oh, yeah. doing the biggest rides in the world and being one of the best riders in the team. Certainly, He'd be in that category of a super domestic, a super team player mm. at a point where he then obviously decided to retire to look after his own mental well-being and to get it right, I suppose. So the ability to open that up, I think, is great. And it could be a conversation starter for others. Yeah, absolutely. And talk about pressure. I mean, he was hailed as being the first British Tour de France winner. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, he really was that good as a junior and an under-23. And I still wonder now, you know, even after the pod, whether that pressure and expectation was too much, but... I guess if he says no, he says no. You know, yeah. he was enjoying it at the time and it's sort of later on in his career that things developed and he started struggling a little bit more. But. Especially as being hailed as the first British Tour de France winner, but then he's part of the team that gets Bradley Wiggins up there and oh, yeah. gets Chris Froome up there and he's like, all oh, right, okay, well, actually, yeah. I'm working harder to give somebody else my dream. Yes. Yeah. So you get a bit of conflicted internal sort of message into yourself, I suppose, don't you? So it was interesting. It'd be interesting to see where he goes next, I think. Yeah, if nothing else, I'll tell you what, it was good to catch up with a fella because it seems weird, you know, you spend so much time with them at your room and you're doing every training camp with him and spend more time with your teammates, you're doing your girlfriend in the Olympic yeah. year and then, you know, so quickly he's just off doing the road and I'm off doing the road and the track and just doing other things in life and he's sort of settling down with his wife and kids and it's probably gone five or six years without actually speaking to him, just the odd message here and there. Yeah. So it's good to see him online, if nothing else. And again, it's like it jumped out with me and I know I've mentioned it in a few of the reviews of podcasts so far, is at the crossroads between elite sport and military. In the military, you could be literally living with each other, you know, for yeah. certainly six months, apart from, you know, the time you sleep in. Yeah. You live in each other's pockets when you're on deployments and detachments all over the world. And you become really close. But then when you're doing a job in the UK or, or overseas, a more day-to-day -day job, you know, you're working together for two or three years. Mm. You're thick as thieves. But what I noticed yesterday was is the very similar crossover is that you might not see each other for three, five, ten years. Yeah. But when you do chat, it's if you saw each other yesterday. <laughs> you know, even off camera at the start, yeah. you know, hi, how are you doing, mate? Everything all right? He was like, hey, mate, you okay? How are you doing? Yeah, okay, give us two sec. <laughs> it's if you only saw him yesterday. And I found that really interesting because you've got that bond, haven't you? Absolutely. There's no way you can go through that process. And you go to hell and back, honestly, you know, before you get to stand on top of an Olympic podium, you know, which in itself is a weird moment that, you know, you experience with very few other yeah. people. When you sort of combine that with the aftermath and the pre-race nerves and all the daft things that we got up to in the years preceding it, you're just like brothers, aren't you? So, um, yeah, whilst we might not ring each other every day, it's just like we met him yesterday. So yeah, it's good to good, see him. Yeah. Good lad, good lad. And again, great, great podcast, really different. So different slant, different angle, different tone to it, which is great, mm. which is what we're after, a bit of variety around yeah, he's really thoughtful still. And yeah. I sometimes think he's still sort of processing everything, isn't he? Processing, after, like, he processing his new job. And yeah. yeah, I can relate to that, Phil. Good yeah. on him, yeah. Hope you all enjoyed it. Cheers, everyone.
Hey guys, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Come and follow us on social media. Just search for Pursuit Line on your preferred platform. We're on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Interact with us and let us know your thoughts. Catch you next time.